Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Her Straight on the Box, with Katie and Allie. So normally, it would just be Allie and I, and we'd be telling you all sorts of stories about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. So we have a special guest with us today, Sherry Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, Sherry is a writer and an educator, and we have invited her on to talk on our show today about her new book, Bohemian West, Free Love, Family, and Radicals in 20th Century America. Hi, Sherry. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a historian, as you indicated. I spent many years as an academic historian. I taught at various places, most recently at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Very recently, I retired from teaching to become a full-time historian and writer. And that allowed me to leave Dallas and live in uh, great places like Moose, Wyoming in the summer and then uh, Pasadena, California in the winter. That's so, so funny. When um, we looked at uh, the publisher's website and it said you live in Wyoming and California, I was like, oh, she migrates. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. I've migrated for quite a while, actually. When I went to Dallas, my husband said, oh, to Texas, he said, okay, but we have to spend our summers someplace else. Yeah. And so, uh, that was Wyoming. And so we've been going back and forth between Wyoming and Dallas for a long time. And now we're switching to California and, and Wyoming. That's awesome. And so you, I was looking at some of your credentials of what you've taught in the past. And it looked like you've taught um, history classes about the American West and about Native America. And then you've written a couple books about Native Americans as well. Yeah, my, my primary field of research is the American West, and um, also Native American history, although in the latter, I haven't really written specifically about Native Americans, but more about their relationships with non-Native people, mm -hmm. um, from army officers in the 19th century to hippies in the 20th century. So uh, I'm really kind of interested in the ways in which conceptions or ideas about Indians have shaped policy, and the way in which Indians have used those ideas about themselves to advance their own uh, agendas and, and purposes. And particularly in the Hippies and Indians book, uh, you see how they many of these um, Red Power Movement people in particular understood that hippies were drawn to what they thought Indians were all about. And so they took advantage of that and used them as allies in uh, their political activities. So um, I'm, I'm more in the um, arena of perceptions of Indians, but, you know, ideas and cultural ideas, but how those play into politics. Very interesting. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, <laughs> we're really excited to get into this most recent book that you've written. Um, but first, we have a cocktail to introduce that we have made in honor of your book. Um, Allie, what are we drinking tonight? So tonight I made a cocktail for this book so that when we release this episode, this can go out and everybody can drink while they read and buy your book. So this cocktail is called Bohemian West. It is one ounce of gin, one ounce of elderflower liqueur, one ounce of grapefruit juice, a dash of bitters, and then egg white. And as we tell our listeners, whenever you use egg white in a cocktail shaker, don't put ice in the cocktail shaker. Mm -hmm. Wait till later. Yeah. <laughs> It'll taste better. Yeah. So... Cheers. Cheers to you and, and to you. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. I mean, it's delicious. I love an egg white cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get started. So I think one of my very first questions is, when did you first hear about these two main characters? And can you kind of introduce our listeners to them? Yes, uh, I had mentioned that I had written about 
army officers in the 19th century. And one of my, well, I don't know if I call him my favorite, but one of the most interesting was this guy named Charles Erskine Scott Wood, who went to West Point because his dad made him go. And he became an officer and sent out West. And he fought in the, uh, what they were calling the Indian Wars, uh, really wars against Native American people. Um, and he was quite reluctant as a soldier. Um, and uh, as in the course of the Nez Perce War, for instance, he was writing in his diary things like thoughts of a man, uh, on Indians as men and brothers. And at the end of that conflict, he really befriended Chief Joseph, who was the leader of the opposition, and became enthralled with him and had great respect for him, ultimately became quite sympathetic to the more general situation for Native American people and sent his own son not to West Point, but to live with Chief Joseph for several summers. So I really, I found him very interesting. And his papers were at the Huntington Library in California. And while I was looking at his, his Indian War stuff, I saw there are all these boxes of letters between Wood and this woman who I knew was not his wife. And I thought, what is that about? <laughs> so I dipped into it and I discovered what it was about was this um, uh, affair between the two of them that began in 1910 and lasted for many years because there were all these letters. So I thought to myself, someday I'd like to go back and look into that a little bit more. And it took me quite a while to get back because uh, I was doing other things. But I finally did go back and make that relationship the focus of a, a book and a very different kind of book than, the, than what I'd written before. Um, and so the woman was a much younger woman named Sarah Bard Ergot was her uh, married name. Her, her professional name was Sarah Bard Field. And she was uh, much younger than he was, 30 years younger. She was married to a Baptist minister when they met. They um, instantly were attracted to each other when they did meet in 1910 in Portland, Oregon, but took a while to grow into a full-blown love. But that is uh, what indeed happened. So those are my two principal uh, figures in this book. Yeah, and I thought immediately while reading, of course, the first thing I do is flip to the table of contents to see what's happening. And I was like, this is a really interesting way to tell the story of American history through a love story. Mm -hmm. How did that, did that dawn on you right from the beginning or was it after you were diving into their lives that you were like, oh, look at all these things they were involved in and how I can use this to tell the story of America? Gee, I'm not quite sure I can say exactly how that process worked out other than initially, I thought this was going to focus on the two of them. And initially I thought, well, maybe what I should do is just do a compilation of the letters. But there were so many, and they were so long. And actually, not a single one was the same. I mean, it was remarkable to me how these letters were different from one another. And over time, of course, the, the topics and the subjects and the issues change. But I quickly realized this was just too, too much stuff to put into a compilation of letters. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to try to tell the story. But the academic in me um, said, but you can't just tell the story. <laughs> you have to draw some larger meaning out of that story. Um, and then the other part of this is that they are not well known. I mean, one of the reviewers described them as two of the most interesting people you've never heard of. So I thought, you know, to make up, do a book and get it published about two unknown people from Portland, Oregon, might be a challenge, but they knew so many interesting and important people. And in fact, the very famous lawyer, Clarence Darrow, introduced them in the first place. 
And then their, po their political activities in particular drew them into these larger um, waves of American progressive and radical history with very, again, famous, well-known people. And finally, their literary uh, activities also brought them into uh, the, the stream of particularly Western uh, writers. So I thought, you know, this is a story where I need to bring that intimate love story into conversation with the broader context in which they lived. Because the two of those two things, the intimate story and the, the larger political story, actually are well integrated anyway. You cannot understand the intimate story unless you understand their politics and their politics inform the intimate story. So I, I don't know when I suddenly realized this was going to be both of those things. But ultimately, I knew I had to find a way to make the love story the centerpiece and yet constantly be going in and out, sort of opening the lens to the broader world and then bringing it back in. Uh, mm -hmm. So I do, in fact, think this is a story of love, but it is also a story that I think provides readers with a granular sort of on the ground look at not only what it meant to be involved in a free love relationship in the early 20th century, but also what was going on among these people who were engaged in the, um, the progressive and radical issues of their time. Yeah, and I think it's so great that you mentioned that because one of the people that Erskine has contact with is Emma Goldman, who we have covered on this podcast, yeah. and she's very famous. So what was yes. their relationship like? Well, um, you know, he defined himself as a philosophical anarchist. And one of the things that makes him so interesting is that he is just a bundle of contradictions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, he talks he, his, in his heart of hearts, he would have been a poet, not uh, an uh, army officer and then a lawyer. In his heart of hearts, he would have been truly an anarchist who uh, lived a life of individual freedom, not a person who was actually, you know, very prominent in the legal profession in Portland and married to a Catholic woman and the father of many children. Um, so, but, but he was um, in his spare time uh, a, a writer of essays and, and he wrote quite a few essays about philosophical anarchism. He was an advocate of it and he knew all the radicals back in New York City. So when, their, when his path crossed with Emma, I'm not quite sure, but he did know her. And she went on lecture tours several times during her life. And you know, this is the thing, one thing I didn't realize was how much these people were traveling across the country. Um, you think of Emma Goldman as living in New York City, but she was out there in Portland uh, lecturing to people about what mattered to her. Um, and so when she came to Portland, however, she was a controversial figure. And when she came uh, the first time, she was supposed to speak uh, in some hall and the people who owned it when they discovered who she really was and what she was going to say, said, you can't speak here anymore. So Wood stepped up and he got a place for her to appear publicly. And so, and he did this several times. And he also uh, promoted her uh, in writing and he introduced her when she came to speak. So they were, uh, I wouldn't call them close friends, but they knew each other. And when he came to Portland, she could rely on him to make sure that she had a place to speak and an audience to speak to. Now, on the other, on the other hand, she could sometimes be a rather caustic personality. <laughs> and so she did not hesitate to sort of poke at him a little bit uh, when she was speaking in Portland to suggest that he was one of those sort of genteel figures, you know, who uh, seemed to sort of play around with anarchism rather than really commit his life to it. 
And, you know, uh, she said this and the audience was sort of tittering because they were aware that what did seem to be the sort of bundle of contradictions as a public figure, he was often being sort of, um, not criticized exactly, but that people were noting the difference between this man who made his money by defending corporations and rich people, and yet was in his own personal politics trying to defend the poor. Um, but when she when she did that, he you know he didn't feel too badly about it, and he just uh, said to Sarah, uh, "The fact of the matter is that radicals do need to have wealthy people among their supporters because they do have the money that they will commit to um, this, this, the same ends, and also you know the, the ability to find places for you to speak and so on." So it wasn't a deep friendship, uh, but it was a legitimate, I think. Uh, uh, friendship of mutual respect and shared politics. Yeah, and that's what I think is so interesting too that you say that because you mentioned that their style of bohemianism rejected poverty and embraced material richness. So is that all part of him just being very contradictory? And what exactly did he yes. believe in the, like what was the power of material richness for him? Yeah, he, um, <laughs> This is why I like him. I mean, I don't always like him. I don't want yeah. always <laughs> said, but what I do like about him is that he is so human. Mm. Uh, he he really did love beautiful things, and he wanted to have them around him, and he had the means to acquire them, and so he was not willing to give that up in his life, and. Uh, so at the same time, as far as he was concerned, that was not a contradiction to his genuine commitment to um, equality and freedom of speech and the right of labor to organize and all of those kinds of things. So I don't think he himself saw this as a contradiction, but I think we do. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly do. Um, you know, but he, was, he, he seemed to think that he, had, he worked hard for his money he was extremely generous to uh, his own family, his friends, Emma Goldman, uh, and others. So he wasn't a selfish sort of person who was you know, gathering his money and hoarding it. He gave it away. He used a lot of it for his political um, ideals, but he also enjoyed living beautifully. And so he would not deny himself that. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about the people around him at the time. I One of the things I liked that you were saying in the book was that they were fighting battles in society, but also in their homes and in their bedrooms. Like what types of battles were men and women fighting for to balance within their homes? Well, this was the time, of course, of the new woman. And Sarah Bartfield, who we haven't talked about too much yet, uh, was one of those, although, uh, she just sort of grew into that position. So when she met Wood, she was married to a very conventional, although he was also progressively minded in his politics, but in terms of his religion, he was a Baptist minister, quite, uh, he was a, you know, quite conservative in terms of his theology. So anyway, she, she found herself in a marriage that wasn't uh, a happy one for her. And Wood had long been married and probably around the time uh, of his late 40s, early 50s, he had the midlife crisis, right? And um, as an advocate of philosophical anarchism, he also believed in a free love. Uh, this is uh, something that I think he developed also over time. Uh, so, the, so the two of them become advocates of free love. And what that meant to them was 
their love existed outside of church and state, did not require the sanctions of church and state, and ultimately thought that marriage was one of those institutions that really did more harm than good. So that's all, you know, that's a struggle for starters. But even within that free love relationship, one learns when you look at their letters, that that might resolve one issue. You don't need to be sanctioned by church and state to, to live together and to love each other. But then you have the power struggle within the relationship as well. So one of the key issues, and this will not surprise you or your listeners, that they disagreed about was the issue of monogamy. Uh, free love to many people sounds like promiscuity. And that is not what either one of them had in mind. But Erskine in particular did believe that free love meant one was free to pursue relationships when they came, you know, your way. Um, and if people were in mutual agreement. And Sarah believed, of course, that their love for each other was supreme. And so uh, monogamy was what she wanted and what she hoped that he would agree to. But he, he didn't. I mean, when they were together, uh, it wasn't a problem, but they were apart a lot. And it was during those times when they were separated that this issue of monogamy or not becomes a really um, a difficult issue for them uh, that they try, they're trying to work out in their writing and their letters, but never really do they uh, come to an agreement about it until later when they finally do live together. And then it stops being an issue. Now, how long were they together for? <laughs> Well, um, they met in 1910. She eventually uh, leaves Portland where they met uh, because she could no longer live there with her husband. So she had to leave and got divorced. Um, but it, and so, and then uh, she's living in California, he's living in Portland. It's not until late in 1918 that he finally comes to California to live with her. And so they, begin to share a home in California in 1918, and they are together then until he dies in 1944. Wow. Yeah, so there, there was a significant age gap too, about 30 years, you say. So yes. was that also uncommon in society at this time? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't think it was typical, mm -hmm. but neither was it super uncommon, I guess. Um, Probably that huge, I mean, 30 years seems like a lot. Uh, and um, so I, I'm really not sure how common that was or not. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as she was concerned, he worried about it more than she did, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she was just so deeply in love with him that to her that was totally irrelevant. And he had some concerns about, you know, his virility as time went on and so forth, um, which she just sort of swatted away as, as not important to her which isn't to suggest they did not have a very passionate love affair, uh, but she did not find that age difference to be an impediment. She felt he had so many other wonderful uh, attributes that she was not gonna, um, wasn't concerned about that. Right, and we talked a little bit about anarchy and about free love and about material wealth. Were there other movements that they were, you know, a part of the activist uh, community in? Yes, they were involved in just about every single <laughs> at the time, really. But of course, for her, the most critical one was the women's suffrage movement. Um, it is interesting to me that she got involved in that 
mostly because she was looking for something to do while she waited for him to leave his family and come and live with her. <laughs> but I don't mean to suggest that she wasn't truly committed because she was. So she gets involved in first the Oregon suffrage movement in 1912, in part because it provided her with a livelihood. She was trying to demonstrate to herself that she could leave her marriage, but still be able to make a living and not be dependent upon wood. Um, so she, was, she just jumped into that and, and just loved it and found that in the company of other women and in having this purpose of her, in her life that got her out of her obsession with wood, um, that she, she was beginning to discover who she really was. Um, so between 1912 and 1918 is when she goes in and out of uh, active involvement in the women's suffrage movement. Uh, the second chapter of that, and I think the more interesting one, is when she becomes involved with Alice Paul's National Women's Party, mm. starting in 1915. And there, the emphasis becomes uh, moving toward the getting an amendment uh, passed by Congress and ratified by the states. So she jumps in full bore into that um, various times. Uh, in 1915, when um, she's working at their booth at the Panama Pacific Exposition, and later in the year when she drives a car across the continent with two other women to bring a petition to Congress and President Wilson demanding uh, the, the uh, amendment be written and ratified, and then uh, finally trying to defeat President Wilson in 1916 because he hadn't supported um, the women's suffrage referendum, I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, amendment. And um, so again, working on behalf of the Women's Party in terms of their strategy to try to use Western women's uh, votes uh, to force the party in power, which happened to be the Democrats, to come around to support women's suffrage publicly. Great. And then I also have one more question about their relationship too. Um, so you mentioned in one sentence that, and I love this, uh, it says, he loved his children and grandchildren and retained deep, deep affection for his loyal wife and an equally loyal mistress of many years. And it kind of seems to me that their relationship kind of spun out and hurt a lot of people around them for years to come. What were the ripple effects in their personal lives that came from this choice that they made? Mm. That's a huge question. I'm, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought up the pain yeah. because that is a major theme um, of this book. They, there are many aspects of these two people that I find appealing, but there are also aspects that are not appealing. And uh, what you realize when you look so closely at this incredibly documented relationship is how many people were hurt along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we all would naturally assume their uh, spouses were, and uh, her husband in particular, I have letters from him, and the pain and the humiliation uh, is just so uh, raw in those letters. I don't have his wife's uh, point of view, actually. She didn't write anything down. All I have about how she saw things comes really from him when he reports them, and I don't find him terribly reliable, but clearly she suffered a great deal too. And then, of course, there's the children. Uh, particularly Sarah's children were quite young when this happened. But if you're asking me about the pain that they uh, created, uh, caused for each other, is that part of what you're asking? 
part well. of that too. Yeah, I was thinking about them and just the strained relationship that it probably caused between them and their children. Yes. Um, in terms of the children, uh, what was so remarkable to me was how Sarah's kids, who were so young, were so aware of what was going on and so sensitive to the fact that Wood was first in their mother's life. And uh, they, they didn't want to lose her. So um, the children, I think, uh, did the best they could. Um, and uh, the, uh, the little girl in particular, I think, for the rest of her life, carried scars from the conflict between her parents, for one thing, and the realization that she was not the most important person in her mother's life. What's interesting to me also, though, was Wood's children, who were much older. I mean, they were married by the time this relationship emerges. And yet, even there as well, uh, it, it caused great pain and hurt in the family. And, and because, first of all, they had allegiance to their mother um, and could see what this was doing to her. But also, uh, he eventually did leave Portland. And he was a wonderful father. I mean, he was this incredible personality, warm and generous and giving. And so when he left, they also lost something to their lives, uh, pretty much leave the family. So um, in terms of one another, uh, I think Sarah probably took more of the slings and arrows uh, than he did. Uh, but there were moments when, uh, you know, he would become angry with her uh, because he felt like she was pressuring him and he was doing all he could to take care of his family and his affairs in Portland before he joined her. Um, so there, was a, there were moments of, of you know, despair, anger, um, sadness between them as well. So it's, there's lots of you know, beauty and they, they would emphasize the positive, but the story when you look at it closely, you realize it's a mixed bag of both, uh, you know, they did ultimately achieve what they wanted to, but at cost for sure. One thing I love to ask people when they use primary sources like letters for books like this is who had the best handwriting and who had the worst? Like what was the struggle <laughs> for you? Uh, actually, they're both pretty good. I could read all of the letters pretty easily. So that was good. Uh, Wood had this kind of flowing, beautiful uh, hand and he always used this green ink. That was sort of his signature <laughs> ink color. I don't know why. He must have had a beautiful fountain pen that he loved and he had green ink. Um, and, uh, you know, Sarah was not quite as um, flowing, but it was fine. I could read both of them, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we heard Emily Dickinson's handwriting was awful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. Okay. Right. And how did you come across these letters? Where did you find them? Well, I um, mentioned earlier at the Huntington Library uh, mm -hmm. when I was looking at his earlier uh, stuff from the, from the 19th century and I saw all these boxes and that's how I, how I discovered them. Mm -hmm. By accident, really. Yeah. <laughs> and did your research take you anywhere? Like, did you travel to go see any places where they would have lived? I did. I went to Portland and uh, walked the streets uh, of downtown Portland, some of which sort of looked the same. I went to the place where his house above Port, the, the downtown area, he lived above the town in this very nice uh, neighborhood. His home is no longer there, but his son who lived next door, his home is there. But the, but the coolest thing that happened was as you know from reading the book, they did eventually live together. 
in San Francisco on Russian Hill. And the home they had there is still there. And I, I was in San Francisco for a conference. And so I went up to this house. I'd never been there before. And I was sitting on the stoop writing a note, dear whoever lives in this house. <laughs> I'm writing a book about people who used to live here. And while I was sitting there, one of the people came. Oh. came just came home. And so they let me come inside and see the inside of the house. And then the other thing was they eventually built their own home. <coughs> Excuse me down in the Los Gatos area. And people that live in Los Gatos and Santa Cruz know this estate because when you're on the highway between those two towns, you see these big stone cats that are right on the highway. And so I once went up there just to look at the cats, I mean, to look at those statues, but there was a gate, you know, you couldn't go into the estate. Well, a friend of mine who teaches at Santa Cruz let me know a couple of years ago that it was for sale. And she said, you should uh, ask the realtor if he will show you the property. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. But what can you lose? So I did. I emailed him, and he said, sure. Come Next time you're in the Bay Area, let me know. Of course, I made a point of going very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I got to see the incredible estate that they had built in the 20s. And there had been essentially one owner once Sarah sold it in 1955, and those owners had really left it pretty much as it was. Wow. So it was really, really important to me and wonderful to be able to, to walk that space and to see the beautiful the sculptures and things that they had built on that um, property. So it makes a huge difference when you're writing biography, I think, to go to the places where they were. Um, right. It's important uh, to do that, I think. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. And I just, I, I love the idea of going to these places and seeing where they walked. And I just think it's so great that you were able to do that. And I also want to know, was there any part of the book that you really struggled to write while you were doing it? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, the story, the real story begins in 1910, but I didn't think I could explain what happened unless I had something, some of the individual, two individuals' backgrounds. And so for me, summarizing Wood's life between the time he was born in 1852 and he met her in 1910, which was so rich and varied, but important to understanding who he was in this story. That was a struggle for me to get it down to however many pages it was. Yeah. <laughs> Taking all the complexity of his character and his experiences and getting it into one chapter was a, was a challenge. I would say overall the biggest challenge was I had so much more material than I could put in the book. Right. And my first draft was 900 pages. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I had to cut it like half. By half I had to cut yeah. it. So many great stories, particularly about the families and the kids and right. what I had to take out in context. So yeah, that was the biggest struggle of all was deciding what to take out. Mm. That was painful. Mm. And I think it's really great too that you mentioned that he did spend some time in Baltimore or like around Baltimore and that's mm. where we're from. Wow. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Are there any spots around here that we should see that are important to Erskine? Gosh, Rosewood Glen was the place that his dad, who was um, Surgeon General of the Navy when they lived there, purchased. 
I don't really know exactly where that is. I think it might be around Owings Mill or something. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All so right. I'm not sure that I'm right, though. I think it was like 13 miles outside of Washington, D.C. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Rosewood Glen was the name of the of their house or their little farm. Um, right. So, but I think it, Owings Mill, I think, was where it was. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I didn't get there. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> We're on the East Coast. It's far. <laughs> yeah. um, what is something that you would want readers to know about your book when they're going to buy it? Yeah, I think uh, two things. First of all, I do hope they learn something about um, this radical age in American history, um, the teens and into the 20s. It's such a fascinating time in American history. But I don't think people know a great deal about. So I'm hoping that this is a window into what it was like, but particularly what it was like to live it. Mm -hmm. um, other people have written a great deal about the ideas and the politics, but this is kind of radicalism on the ground and what it meant to try to remake your life, both as a couple, but how to remake American life as well, I, I hope comes alive um, through this story. The second part of it is that Whenever I've talked to people about this project, whether it's at a party or on an airplane or whatever, um, people seem drawn in by it, particularly non-historians. Mm -hmm. And they want to know more about uh, the marriage and the free love relationship and the children and all those things. Because I think that although it's 100 years later, it's now easier to get divorced. Women don't have to give up custody of their children. Uh, you know, in the way that, that Sarah really had to. Um, nevertheless, the issues at the core of this private intimate story are still very relevant and things that people can, um, I think, identify with. So I think in some respects, that's what I like better about the book, that it makes readers, certainly made me, think about what choices have I made? Uh, what things have I given up? What have I sacrificed? What have I gained by those choices that I've made? And these are things that we live with every day, um, our relationships with intimate others and children and families and parents. So um, I think I kind of like the way in which it works as both um, a biography of a relationship, but also uh, a biography of their time. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was trying to achieve anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and where and when can people find this book so that they can get it and read it for themselves? Well, um, I do have a website. And so would you like me to give you the address? Yes, of yeah, course. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's pretty simple. It's www.sherry, that's spelled S-H-E-R-Y, L. Smith, sherrylsmith.com. And if you go there, there are a couple of different places. You can buy it from the publisher, Heyday Books, or you can buy it from Amazon or have an independent bookshop uh, button um, and a couple other independent bookstores. So uh, it's accessible there. Or if you just go to Heyday Books or Amazon and put in Bohemians West, you can find it there as well. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was so great to meet you and talk to you about this book and really get an insight into these people in this time period. And we always love talking to people who are passionate about their topics and it really yes. shines through. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, particularly to talk to somebody on the East Coast about this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do, although I use the title West, I use the word West in my title. 
I really struggled about whether I should do that because mm -hmm. I do believe this is a story of national consequence and national interest. So I'm so pleased that you are interested in talking to me about this. Oh yeah, I loved it. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you again, and we hope that everyone goes out and reads your book, and it was just such a pleasure to talk to you, so we hope that you have a great rest of your day on the West Coast, and I think that's it. Yeah, I think we're good. All right. <laughs>